go with me uh, to Acts chapter 12. We've been looking at here recently um, stories of the disciples and the apostles of Jesus going after people. Um, and we've been using that phrase over the last couple of weeks, going after people. We've been talking about who is the one that God has put in front of you or who is the one that God has put in your life that you are supposed to go after, that you're supposed to show Jesus to, that you're supposed to witness to. And so, and we're going to continue to use that phrase, going after people. We're going to continue to ask you, who is the one that God has put in your life right now? Okay, because I want, what, I mean, this is the great commission that Jesus gives us. If you've been redeemed by Christ, therefore, then you've been called to go after people. You've been called to love people. You've been called to show people Christ. All right, when people look at you, all right, they should behold the image of Christ. They should listen to the way that you talk and they should behold the image of Christ. They should look at your marriage and they should behold Christ and the church. When they watch you serve people, they should behold the person of Christ. All right? This is, the, the, this is what it means to go after people, to witness to people. That means when they see our lives, they should behold the image of Christ. They should see Christ in us. And so as we read Acts chapter 12, I want to pull out some things about King Herod and about Peter in regards to witnessing, all right, or going after people, some things I want you to remember and know, okay, to take away um, from these two characters. So let's read Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel of the Lord said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them in its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And while he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. 
But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, and he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Go back to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. I want to start with King Herod. King Herod here in verse 1 is the grandson of Herod the Great. Okay, and he lays violent hands on those who belong to the church, and he kills James. All right, he kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. Back in Matthew chapter 20, all right, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, take heart. You're going to drink the cup that I drink. You're going to be baptized into the baptism in which I have been baptized in, meaning you're going to taste this cup of death. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be afflicted for your faith. Okay? Take heart. If they persecuted the master, why wouldn't they do that to the servant? All right? And then we see the fulfillment of this in chapter 12. James is the first to go. His brother John will be the last. Okay? So King Herod kills James by the sword. Verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. The first thing I want to say, all right, in light of Herod the king, in light of our witness is this, true authority, true authority doesn't look for anything, okay? True authority isn't looking for anything. True authority is not looking for approval. True authority is not looking to be accepted, when King Herod saw that when he had killed James with a sword that it pleased the Jews, it said about all right, King Herod that he governed to the satisfaction of the Jews, meaning he governed, he led to appease, to satisfy this Jewish people. Because when you can get a group of people to be on your side and you can please them, you have a group of people to move your own agenda then. It governed to the approval of the Jewish people when I'm telling you that true authority isn't looking for something. It's not looking for a people that approve of you. It's not looking for a people who will follow you. True authority has something to offer. True authority has something 
to offer. And you have something to offer. In Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You have the authority of Jesus Christ dwelling within you. When he goes back to be with the Father, he says, I'm going to send the Spirit to dwell within you, to guide, to teach, to empower you. You have my authority in you. You have something to offer, a real authority, a powerful authority. King Herod was looking for the approval, looking for a mass to move his agenda. I think about the political scene. I think about our political culture today. I see on the left, I see on the right, I see everywhere. I don't see true authority. I don't see somebody with something to offer. Hey, let me give you life. Let me offer you life. Hey, let me offer you wisdom. Let me offer you correction. Hey, let me offer you encouragement. I see a bunch of people looking for something, looking for approval, looking for a mass to manipulate, to move an agenda. I don't see true authority. And that's the beautiful beautiful thing about the church and about our witness is that when we go out, we don't have to look for anything. We don't have to look for anything. When we are satisfied in the love of God for us, we carry the authority of Christ with us and we only have things to offer. We don't need anything. When you go and share the message of Jesus and you witness, we don't need anything. Hey, I just want you to have life. That's beautiful. And it's a stark contrast to the world around us. It's beautiful. True authority isn't looking for anything. Jesus wasn't waiting for us to go, Jesus, please, will you die for me? Will you die for me? Can you do that? Will you die for me? No. He wasn't looking for anything. He doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need anything from you. He has life to offer. Staying on King Herod, if you go to the end of chapter 12, In verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he, has eaten, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The second thing about true authority is that true authority doesn't leverage power. True authority doesn't leverage its control. Because there were these neighboring countries that depended upon the king's country for their economic wealth and their health. They depended, they were dependent upon the king's country. And so that's why you see them coming to him. There's some tension between the king 
in these countries, and they came to him, all right, trying to seek peace because they knew their economic wealth and their, the, the, their health as a country and as a people depended upon how was the king going to respond to them. And so they came looking for peace. And you see King Herod puts on his royal robe. He gets on his throne. He delivers this eloquent speech, this message, this talk, and they respond. The voice of a God and not a man. Because how else are they supposed to respond? Right? And this is exactly what King Herod wants. Yes, yes. Prop me up. Love me. Give me glory. Give me glory. True authority doesn't leverage their power or doesn't leverage their control or their position over people. True authority doesn't manipulate people. True authority doesn't create codependencies. That's exactly what King Herod wants. Dependency. For then he's in control, he's in power. No, true authority empowers. Jesus sends his disciples out in two. Says go. Jesus sends back to the Father, sends the Holy Spirit down to empower us to walk in our assignment, in our ministry. True authority doesn't create codependencies, it empowers. As you go, as you witness to your community, and the authority that you have in Christ, empower. Empower people. Teach people how to yearn. Don't create codependencies. Empower them. Charge them. Equip them. Send them out. If you live your life seeking the approval of people. This is King Herod, okay? Seeking the approval of people. You're gonna kill yourself. King Herod was struck down in a moment, eaten by worms. But if you live your life seeking the approval of people for whatever reason, because you don't want to be canceled or you don't want to offend somebody, whatever the case is, you're going to kill yourself. Because what's going to happen is you're just going to chain yourself to that person and what they think about you. And it's going to suffocate you. It's going to suffocate you. What does Jesus say about you? That's all that matters. All that matters. Peter. Let's look at Peter. Peter. In this chapter, we get the story of Peter has to live with James, a good friend, an apostle, alongside of him, be killed by the sword. 
He has to deal with that. He's taken by a bunch of guards and he's put in jail. And he knows when the week of unleavened bread is over, they're going to pull him out of jail and they're going to kill him too. Because King Herod governs to the satisfaction of the Jews. You know what? And Peter's response is, is almost leaves you puzzled. Because this is the same Peter in the garden when they came and got Jesus. He's standing next to Jesus, cuts the guard's ear off, saying, you're not, you're not taking Jesus. So now they come and get him and said, you would think, Peter's like, yeah, time to fight again. Let's go. This is the Lord's fight. Grab your sword. May the best man win. Something happened in Peter. It's like guards came. He's like, okay, so let it be. They're going to keep me in here for a week, then they're going to bring me out, and they're going to kill me with the sword. All right. So let it be. What do we make of this? What do we learn about Peter's response? As I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, okay, there's a stark contrast between King Herod and Peter. And the difference is this, meekness. Meekness. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. As the world rages in might and in power for control, just like King Herod is doing, right? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Meekness is the difference between King Herod and Peter. What is meekness? Okay. Meekness can be uh, described as subdued, meaning you have passion that you're able to subdue, not subdued as in like you're a pushover or you're passive or you're timid. That's not meekness. Okay, Gentle, self-controlled, subdued, humble. All right? not, not timid, because when we think about meekness, oftentimes it's like, yeah, uh, well, yeah that's a sissy word. Betsy, Betsy Sterling was over at the house this past week and she's going to kill me for saying it. Uh, but I said, what do you think about when, she, when, when you think about the word meekness? She said, meh. Meekness is meh. All right. Meekness is not meh. All right. It's bold. It has convictions. Okay. It has passion, but it's able to subdue or control those passions, those zeal, that, that, that zeal. Okay. This is Peter. One of the best descriptions this week that I came across thinking about meekness is somebody said, and listen to me, this earth is not a place for your self-assertion. Another, another word, this earth is not a place for your individualism. This earth is not a place for you to push your agenda. This is a place where we wait for our inheritance. That posture, 
will produce meekness. When you have that mind, that mind of Christ, that, look, I am not put here to just assert my individualism, to assert whatever thought I have, whatever opinion I have on a subject, whatever agenda I might have, I am not here to assert that on this world. I am here waiting on my inheritance. And as I wait on my inheritance, I'm okay with the agenda of God. I'm okay with the agenda of God. I'm okay with his timing. I'm okay with his provision. I'm okay with God's agenda as I wait for my inheritance. Let me tease this out further. First Peter chapter one, it'll be up on the screen. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Peter writes this, same guy who cuts off the soldier's ear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. Meekness is being okay with the agenda of God, not asserting yourself, but being okay with the agenda of God and the inheritance that waits for you, that's undefiled, that's imperishable, that he's guarding for you. He's guarding for you. That's how Peter is able, when the soldiers kill James and the soldiers come get him, and take him to prison, you don't see him going to war again against them. You see him in that moment, God, if this is your agenda, God, if this is your assignment, so help me glorify you. So help me to glorify you. So help me to glorify you. I, I take his posture, if you, you know, really read into it and look at it, it says that he's in a, he, he, he thinks he's in a trance or he's having a vision, doesn't realize that the angel of the Lord is actually leading him out of the prison. And so he gets into the street and then the angel of the Lord leaves and he like comes to his senses like, oh, God was saving me. God was breaking me out. Like you don't see it all in Peter, like him razzled him unsettled, him panicky. No, because meekness allows you to be tranquil in all conditions, all seasons of life. Because your posture is, God, I'm okay with your agenda. I'm okay with your assignment. I trust, I trust you. I trust that what you say in Romans, that you're gonna work all things out for the good of those who love him, I trust you. Resentment isn't present with meekness. Keeping tallies isn't present with meekness. Holding grudges isn't present with meekness. Needing your way isn't present with meekness. Because meekness is all about trusting God's agenda.
And just like we talked about with King Herod and his abuse of authority and his abuse of power and how radically different the church's witness is, the same is true about meekness. When we lay down the desire or the need to assert ourselves and take up God's agenda instead, that is so radically different than our culture. And so when you go out then, you're a powerful witness. When you're able to be settled, regardless of the conditions that are around you, that's a powerful witness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The band's gonna come back up and we're gonna worship. I wanna say one more thing to you in this passage. If you see in verse 24, after Herod dies, Peter's been released, right? It says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. We're studying 2 Timothy with a group of people recently. And it reminded me of this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which says this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Peter was bound in chains. But the word of God is not bound. It said, but the word of God was multiplied. Even in James's death, even in the imprisonment, even in King Herod, governing to the satisfaction of the Jews. Apply that how you'd like today. Nonetheless, the word of God multiplied. It cannot be bound. As you go in authority and in meekness, know that the word of God will not be bound. You have something to offer. Stand with me, let's pray, and then we'll worship. God, thank you for your meekness. Thank you for your meekness. Without your meekness, we're all dead people standing up. We're just dead people without your meekness. Your meekness drove you to the cross because you said, Father, I'm okay with your agenda. If this is what it is to redeem creation, I'm okay with your agenda. God, it was your meekness that made us alive right now. And so God, help us to understand, to have the mind of Christ, to put on meekness. Let it dwell deep within our hearts so that we may witness to a world that is lost. That is lost. Teach us. Teach us to be okay and to trust you in your way. For your way is perfect. Amen.